It's the midsummer episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion and analysis of the news by the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. We have lots to talk about this week, so let's get at it. I'm Chris Quinn, editor of Cleveland.com, and I'm with chief politics writer Seth Richardson and reporters Eric Heisick and Courtney Astolfi. Everyone ready? Yeah. yeah. We're doing good. All right. Let's start with the drop this week of the massive opioid database showing which companies showered this country with highly addictive pain pills and where those pills went in the years leading up to 2012. Interestingly, Ohio was not at the top of the list, uh, but that list does predate most of the epidemic here. Eric, bring us up to date. What is the database and where did it come from? This is a database that is maintained by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. This is the uh, information that drug manufacturers and distributors are required to uh, give to the federal government to basically show the amount of uh, prescription drugs that were sold and shipped in the United States. And was it originally put together as a law enforcement tool, or what was the original purpose of it? Law enforcement is part of it. It's also, you know, just for a way for the DEA uh, to to see basically the amount of pills, um, opioids in this case, uh, where they're going in the country. Yes, the DEA and other law enforcement agencies have used this um, to basically see if they need to bring criminal charges against anybody. But it's not necessarily only that. All right. So what did it show for Ohio? It showed for Ohio, and, and, and I'm going to uh, give a caveat by saying this is actually based on data that the Washington Post analyzed. They did this on Tuesday. We're currently working on our own version of this. Uh, from 2006 to 2012, which is all the data that has been made public at this point, there were uh, almost or uh, almost 3.4 billion uh, prescription pain pills uh, put out in the state of Ohio. Um, you know, it, it varies from county to county how much how much they got. Um, you know, Cuyahoga County was not even near the top of it, even though we have seen so many problems in the last few years. But if you really look at the numbers down near the borders of West Virginia, Kentucky. Uh, the numbers are pretty staggeringly high. What we all know, cause, because we basically started this newsroom in, in 2013 when this was really kicking up as an epidemic, that these numbers predate almost immediately where we went out of control. Why won't the judge release the data from the years that would show Ohio what was the cause of its epidemic? So when you talk about a judge, I think it's important to point out that this data was actually made public uh, recently, but given to a series of lawyers who are suing drug manufacturers and distributors saying, hey, you basically let this epidemic get out of control, didn't do anything about it, and thought about lining your own pockets. They, of course, deny this. Um, the DEA, as part of this, actually released a set of data from between 2006 and 2014. So really, the only uh, two, we're only missing two years. If there was, if there was essentially a uh, law enforcement reason to keep the data um, secret, um, going back that long, it wouldn't have made a difference. This data is embarrassing for, for I think law enforcement, right? Because it does show enormous number of pills going into certain geographies, and you would think if you were law enforcement, that would have been a red flag, and you might have gone and done something about it. Well, I, I think it's fair to point out that they did often do something about it. It's just really the question of who law enforcement went after when they were trying to address this epidemic. I cover federal courts. I see all the time. You see the cases for the, the lower-level drug dealers, the and occasionally you'll see a civil fine um, that a lot of these drug companies agreed to pay for issues related to this. But yes, by and large, some of the larger companies have not really been held responsible in the criminal realm 
for you know basically the billions and billions of pills that have gone into the United States in the last few years. Now, should they? Is there a reason they shouldn't? Yes, there may be an argument for that, but it still stands that the prosecutions of these really go towards the lower level people and not the larger companies that flooded the uh, nation. All right, and as you said, uh, we're we're working on this. This is a mammoth file, and so it's taking some some gymnastics to to crunch it, but we'll be doing a much deeper analysis of Ohio as that data gets smashed. Seth Richardson had an interesting start to the week, hanging out with Senator Sherrod Brown and his wife, columnist Connie Schultz, at the Mexican border. Before we talk about the politics of this, let's start with what you saw down there. How did the senator react to what he saw? What did you see? Um, And what happened? So it was interesting. I'd uh, I'd never been to um, an actual border town before to to, to see the border. I'd been to like San Diego when I was a kid. Um, El Paso has basically three points of entry. And you know, I when I first you know when we first decided that I was going to go to the border, I sort of was thinking, okay, this is going to be some station on a highway, kind of out in the desert, right? And that's really not what it is. You don't kind of think about it, but uh, Juarez bumps right up to El Paso. It's a metropolitan area of basically 2 million people that just so happens to have roads that grow across the border, uh, basically spread throughout. So, um, you know, I went and kind of uh, looked around the day before Sherrod got there and saw some of the crossing facilities, and it was a little strange because you also think of these places as being uh, very high security, uh, but I, you know, I was walking up right next to him, and you know, once I thought about it, it makes sense because people have to get in and get across the border, so you can just kind of walk up to everything. Um, when the senator got there Sunday, we uh, we had basically two uh, events that press were allowed to. Now he did go tour a uh, crossing station, I believe Paso del Norte is the one that he went to. And to start in the morning, we went to a nonprofit migrant processing facility. Now, these are not the same as the ICE facilities or where CBP, uh, Customs and Border Patrol, are holding people. Uh, these are basically for people who have been released from immigration and they are on their way to meet their sponsor. And, you know, we've all seen the pictures, right, um, of some of the, you know, the government facilities. And I have to say that the nonprofit facility was not ideal by any stretch because, you know, it's a big warehouse that's got a bunch of cots, but it had, you know, it it was doing the best with what they needed to do, which is basically hold, you know, get people there. They stay for a day or two and then they get on a bus to go to their sponsor, go to the airport. Why weren't you, why wasn't the senator at one of the government detention facilities? Well, the CBP wouldn't let him in. I mean, he was basically denied access. He he, uh, he told us that he asked to go see one of the facilities. Clint, Texas, is right outside of El Paso. That's the famous one everybody keeps wanting to go to, uh, seeing some pictures from. It's basically where the children who are separated from their families are held. Uh, he was given any number of reasons. Uh, the the one he kept telling us that he was given was that uh, it's a weekend, so they can't find people to show him around on a weekend, which is kind of, a, frankly, a little bit of a silly explanation since that's when senators do things. It's basically on the weekend. Uh, but he was basically denied access, and he's a U.S. senator, and I don't think he's very happy about it. He was pretty angry that he couldn't get in? Yeah, he, he seemed pretty peeved because, you know, his thought was, you know, I represent the people of Ohio, and the people of Ohio want to know what's going on here. The people of America, frankly, want to know what's going on in these places. So I would like access to this. And he was denied. Uh, to, it's also important to note that this is a government-run, you know, it's a taxpayer-funded right. facility. And they're denying a U.S. senator. Uh, so, no, I don't think he's very happy about that. So, so then the other 
place you went, was he was he just hearing stories from people about what their experience was? Yeah. So first he uh, he had kind of a private event with them, and then uh, you know press was allowed in, and uh, yeah, he heard stories from you know, a number of different uh, migrants who came over who were talking about uh, you know immigration kicking in the door without a warrant and bringing soldiers into the house even though they'd been here legally um a, there, there was a daca recipient who um her father was deported without any kind of criminal record and basically it left her mother up here to raise her and her sisters um, she got to grow up mostly with her dad but she kind of pointed out that you know it happened when she was 23 so you know or 23 25 somewhere around there so she can kind of process it but some of these kids are you know six seven eight years old they're very young um and then probably i mean one of the more frankly it was just a heart-wrenching story was from uh this family it was a uh a woman and her 17 year old son and her six-year-old daughter and they fled honduras because her brother uh, they think he's murdered. They think he's dead. They don't know. He just disappeared because he was threatened by gang members. Those same gang members, uh, at least according to her, said they were going to kill her son because they didn't, you know, they didn't want retaliation to go on. So they fled up here. They got to the border on April 16th and uh, just talked about some nightmarish conditions. Sleeping outside, she wasn't given hygiene products while she was menstruating. Uh, her 17-year-old son was the, you know, got a bunch of racist attacks on her. It was uh, really kind of eye-opening. Now let's take the politics side. Sherrod seriously considered running for president in 2020, but ultimately opted not to. Many thought he'd be an ideal candidate given his strength in Ohio and his fearlessness in mixing it up with Donald Trump. Those qualities might also make him an ideal vice president, right? He's on the right ticket. So is that a possible reason why he invited you to accompany him on this visit? I, I've been going back and forth on this all week because when I first heard that he was going to go do this this weekend tour, it also included Netroots Nation, which is one of the largest progressive kind of activists. It's volunteer base is kind of the way I look at it. And that was in Philly, and he addressed the crowd. Some of the things he said there were very interesting. He talked about the dignity of work, which is his campaign slogan. But uh, one of the interesting things he sort of clarified was that, uh, you know, dignity of work does not mean uh, targeting white men who voted for Trump because that's a losing strategy. And that that kind of stuck with me a little bit. Um, he admitted that he's never really done a whole lot on immigration because, frankly, there's not just a whole lot to do on immigration from Ohio. We don't have a lot of uh um, you know, Hispanic people who come to the state. Doesn't stop the uh, federal investigators from <laughs> conducting any number of raids. I, but yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. You go to the Painesville area, you're going to find plenty of people who are here from. Like, yeah, I'm not saying there are none. Countries. But it's just a you know, it's an area of blindness for them. But it also just happens to be the probably the biggest issue uh, on everybody's mind right now because of what's coming out. And so when I when I first heard these things, I was like, oh, maybe he he wants to stay nationally relevant. That's why he's uh, inviting press along and he's doing this trip. Um, because yeah, I think if, uh, if a Kamala Harris or an Elizabeth Warren, you know, if they got the nomination, there's the ticket balancing that people like to right. do, right? Joe Biden with Barack Obama and right. whatnot. Um, so that seemed like it made sense to me. And I called around to a couple people and, um, you know, they didn't really see it though. They said that, you know, they'd lose Democrats would essentially lose a Senate seat if he yeah. were to run. That's big. And, um, you know, the days of kind of picking a, a politician from a certain state because you need to win that state are sort of gone. It's more of a demographics game now. And with 24 people running for president, you know, 
probably one of those are going to be at the top of the pecking order, right? Unify the party. So uh, I'm still a little split on if he is interested in something like that or not, but I think he definitely wants to stay in the national spotlight, um, if only because it does give him a greater platform to you know, talk about what he wants to talk about. And it's early. Lots of, lots of time to go. Mm. All right, let's talk about another lockup facility that's been in the news, the Cuyahoga County Jail. The person who, by Ohio law, is responsible for that jail is the sheriff. And this week, the county council summoned him to a meeting so they could question him about all of the many problems there. Sheriff Cliff Pinkney showed up with his personal lawyer and declined to answer questions, which is pretty astounding. Courtney, you're hearing the council simply won't stand for that. Yeah, we got a statement from County Council President Dan Brady today. He's saying that council is considering pursuing a subpoena to essentially compel Sheriff Pinckney to testify about dozens and dozens of questions that have remained unanswered for months now as we've seen everything unfold over at the county jail. Well, he works for the taxpayers, right? So he's supposed to be accountable in this form of government. How does he get away with refusing to answer questions? Well, that's the thing. I talked to one of the authors of our county charter this week, and he basically said that the way that Pinckney refused to answer questions this week, he was it was it amounted to insubordination of the county charter. He was not following our rules in the county right, by well, doing that. So then the county council's doing its job. They're asking good questions. They've been asking a lot of good questions of late. But this this behavior is by somebody who works for the county executive, Armin Budish. Can Armin Budish just fire him for insubordination? Uh, the charter author, Mr. Kramer, said yes, that, that would be the remedy here. Budish can fire Pinckney for not adhering to his duties under the charter. Budish hasn't done that, and um, his spokespeople won't give me a reason why. Well, hopefully the county council will be able to get him back and ask the questions. In Columbus this week, we were the ones asking the questions about a law that was proposed in the aftermath of the horrible murder of Judge Lance Mason's ex-wife, Aisha Frazier. The judge is charged with killing her. Uh, the original proposal was a, a simple law that would set up a seven-question test about an abusive uh, domestic violence suspect's behavior to see if they were likely to commit more violence so that they could be locked up to prevent that. Uh, but we're hearing this week, Seth, that there have been a whole bunch of extra elements added to that proposed law, which is still in committee. So I think of this as a kind of prime example of, uh, you know, people think how the legislature works is you come up with an idea and it's a very simple, straightforward idea and you can go through that. Well, you know, you look at some of the additions that are on this. You mentioned, you know, it starts off with the domestic violence checklist, right? Supposed to be very simple. Then you add some uh, death penalty uh, uh, provisions. Death penalty, right. Yeah, you uh, you know at one point they were uh, they were considering removing uh, children from the home when that was in there, but uh, you know that got basically tossed out because you'd have a bunch of kids in the foster care system, and you know do you do you want to just place all those kids in foster care? You've got uh, probably the one that is going to be the biggest sticking point is. Um, not allowing um, the accused to ba- basically see some of the evidence against them or to face their accuser for the evidence against them. The Cuyahoga County public defender sees that as a Sixth Amendment violation because you have the right to face your accuser and see the evidence against you. So, but but if you think back to the, the, the Aisha Frazier's family, 
wanted to do something so that her death would not be in vain. And this seven question, whatever it is, assessment has been used by police departments where you ask the question, have they ever committed violence? Or, or you know, There's a bunch of them. And if the answer is yes to X number, I think it's four, the, the danger is there and you lock the guy up. So for every day, Aisha's law is not passed by the legislature. You could argue abused women are in danger because it's not being used widespread across the state to lock them up. Why wouldn't the legislature just do the simple thing and then come back and debate this other stuff as a, as a separate law? I don't think the legislature ever just does the simple thing. I don't think any legislature ever just does the simple thing, right? I mean, if we, if the legislature ever just did the simple thing, we probably wouldn't have jobs covering the legislature because they, you know, be getting stuff done. They wouldn't, you know, we'll talk about it later, but they wouldn't be running up until midnight last night to pass a budget. Perfect but, segue. Would you want to talk about the legislature not doing things the simple way? Long after the deadline passed, the state has a budget. Actually, um, I don't know. Has the governor actually signed it yet? Yeah, it was kind of interesting because I thought we might be in shutdown mode for just a little bit, but that's not how it works because he said today we're recording this on Thursday because he signed it today. It actually goes retroactively to midnight, so there's no like gap okay. or anything. So we don't want to belabor this because we certainly have in the many months it's been under discussion. Give us a couple of highlights of what the budget does. Um, probably the big thing is that it uh, largely preserves the tax cut for um, LLCs, uh, the $250,000, uh, uh, not not a tax cut of $250,000, but you get to, uh, you don't get taxed on that. Um, one of the things that's caused a little chafing among some of the state house crowd is uh, that lawyers and lobbyists are now going to be exempted from that. So um, what you would have is basically these guys would set up an LLC and pay themselves. And the, the idea behind this tax break is that it's supposed to create jobs. Well, if you're just setting up an LLC to pass your money through, you're not really creating a job. You're just paying yourself. How many of the legislators are lawyers? It's a bunch of them. That's right? a good question. I don't actually know <laughs> how many legislators are lawyers. Uh, I also don't know how many lobbyists there are, but I'm sure there are quite a few. Um, you know, one of the other big ones is raising the smoking age to 21. Um, probably doesn't seem that like it necessarily should be in a budget bill, but, um, it wasn't necessarily snuck in there. We knew it was coming, just kind of interesting. Uh, there's going to be some Lake Erie funding, um, H2O, well, water funding, but uh, most of it's probably going to go to Lake Erie, the H2O Ohio fund. But that is going to be uh, a pretty significant decrease as far as the actual funding that is going in. Mike DeWine, the governor, initially wanted, um, I believe, around $900 million to go in there. Um, he's going to get 172. But if there's a surplus next year, yeah, the the fund gets half of that. Yes, but of many people are expecting a downturn in the exactly. economy. Exactly. So we'll probably you know, make sure if, that does not happen. If there's a deficit, then you're not getting anything, right? Um, so there's a couple of provisions in there. All right. Of much more viral interest in the budget is a story Eric wrote this week about someone named Kardashian and a state prisoner who was once on death row. Eric, regale us, please. Uh, so I've been telling people this week that I'm 32 years old and I think my journalism career is over because I've finally written about Kim Kardashian. <laughs> um, no, um, you know, known as a social media, uh, so uh, reality TV star, uh, in the past year, two years or so, she's really been dipping her toe into, uh, issues surrounding criminal justice. Uh, she's kind of cozied up to Donald Trump on, uh, certain issues, uh, being in his ear that basically allowed her or allowed a, uh, Trump to uh, grant clemency to an, a grandmother who was doing a long time for a uh, lower level drug crime. 
This week, she ended up tweeting her support for a man named Kevin Keith, who was in prison in Ohio uh, since about 1994 for a uh, triple murder there. He was on death row. Uh, the governor uh, basically commuted that sentence. He's now doing life in prison. And uh, there's been a large push by some attorneys, including one in Ohio, uh, to try to get him out or at least try to get him a new trial. Kim Kardashian ended up talking to Kevin Keith and uh, is expressing her support, saying uh, he's innocent and uh, people should do something about that. It's amazing you put her name in the story and, and it rockets to the top of our site. Before we break, we have an update on a discussion from last week when we said Governor Mike DeWine owed us a lot more information about how many photos in the state driver license database were used by federal investigators. It turns out DeWine's office had provided those answers, but they had not been reported. Here's the upshot. The Washington Post reported recently that many states had given federal investigators easy access to their driver's license photos for facial recognition software, and this alarmed privacy advocates. In Ohio, however, when DeWine was attorney general in 2013, he oversaw the adding of facial recognition software to the state's criminal justice database to which many law enforcement agencies have access. DeWine, though, foresaw the privacy implications, according to his spokesman, Dan Tierney, and paneled several committees to study and map out best practices and, in the end, set a very high bar for their use by other investigative agencies, defining only three situations when that could happen. Ohio maintains full control over the photos, does not provide them to anyone. Criminal justice agencies that use it must follow the rules, and they're not allowed to use dragnets. Anybody who violates it could be prosecuted, and Tierney said as of December, no one had violated that system. We'll take a break and come back and talk some more about domestic violence in an effort in Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Court to deal with it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Everyone has their favorite writer at Cleveland.com, and now you can get a bit closer to them through Cleveland.com's Project Text. Each weekday, they will send you a text message about what they are thinking as they go about their reporting. It's a unique way of engaging with Mary Kay Cabot as she covers the Browns, Doug Maurice as he thinks about Ohio State University, Corey Schaefer as he shares insights about the Justice Center, and many more. There's a small fee, which we use to support our journalism. Check it out at cleveland.com slash project text. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with Seth Richardson and Courtney Estoffi. And in this segment, we add reporters Pete Krass and Mary Kilpatrick. Pete, you've been covering all of the efforts to reform the justice system in Cuyahoga County to bring equal treatment to all, but you had a story this week about a reform of a different kind, one that takes aim at domestic violence. What is that effort and how will it work? Well, in the Cuyahoga County Common Police Court, they want to add what's called a domestic violence docket, and basically what that means is they want to assign a single judge to high-risk uh, risk domestic violence cases and funnel all of those uh, to her. Uh, the reason behind this is it will provide for uh, better justice, more compassionate justice, whether it's to the defendant or to a victim, uh, better uh, uh, oversight um, and, uh, and treatment. And it's something that they've been talking about around here for a while. And it looks like the, if they get this federal grant, it's a million-dollar grant, uh, it looks like they'll get it. So you talked to Judge Sherry Miday, who would be the person doing this. What's your feeling about how this docket can make a difference? You know, court orders have proven ineffective at keeping abusers away from their victims. 
Does the judge have thoughts on how this docket could break that cycle of people who are arrested for abuse returning and doing it again? Well, I, I didn't talk as much uh, with uh, Judge Madey about it, but I did with Jill Smilek, who works for the uh, family, uh, gosh, what is it, the Community Violence Center. It's a, a county program. And she's all for the domestic violence dockets. Uh, you mentioned uh, court orders, protection orders. They work. They don't work completely, but for the majority of cases, a protection order is probably enough to keep somebody away from a, uh, uh, a victim. Um, she feels that a domestic violence docket would uh, help. Um, How? Well, for one thing, it, uh, a big part of it is, is it would have what they call a compliance uh, component. And so uh, say somebody goes through uh, the court, uh, the judge would have routine visits with the victim and with the uh, defendant to make sure that uh, the, the defendant is in compliance with court orders and also that the victim is feeling safe. And if there are any issues, they would be brought to the judge. It, it's, just a, it's, a, it's just a far more um, comprehensive um, approach to dealing with high-risk domestic violence cases. All right. Seth, I bet we'll be learning details of the 2016 election for the rest of our lives. Um, but we had a story this week with an interesting new detail, the campaigns of former Ohio Governor John Kasich and Senator Ted Cruz. What was that? I want to preface this with I love this story. <laughs> so during the 2016 election, it was down to three – well, it was actually down to one candidate. Donald Trump pretty had pretty much had it wrapped up by then. But you still had Texas Senator Ted Cruz and Ohio Governor John Kasich still in the race. And apparently these two uh, in, in May of that year before uh, both of them dropped out, they met in a San Francisco airport like near a hotel there or at a hotel near there. And Ted Cruz essentially asked Kasich to drop out of the race so that there was a clearer challenge to Donald Trump. Now, it's probably worth mentioning that Cruz had more delegates than Kasich by this point. Uh, Kasich declined and basically said, I'm taking it all the way to the convention no matter what. Um, you know, Ted Cruz ended up dropping out, I believe, May, uh, around May, like a week later, right? Ted Cruz ends up dropping out. And then uh, John Kasich drops out the very next day that apparently made Cruz a little irate, uh, understandably. Although, you know what I love about this story is that, you know, it's easy for us to look at it as like, oh, that's like a peak John Kasich story, right? Taking the uh, podcaster's airline seat, stuff like that. Right. Asking the cop, do you know who I am? You know, that sort of stuff. I think this actually reflects a little more on Cruz, though, because in this story, it's also noted that uh, Ted Cruz tried to team up with Marco Rubio, and Marco Rubio basically said no. So I, I think it actually speaks to how much people don't like Ted Cruz <laughs> and kind of kind of where we were at at that stage in May of 2016, where people thought that Donald Trump was going to get the nomination, but the Republican establishment was like, oh, he'll never win. So that was probably going through their minds, right? Like, oh, he'll never win. And I'll run the next time around or something like that. D didn't Cruz think that Kasich might make a good vice president for him? Wasn't, wasn't I don't think that was Ted that, Cruz. No, um, no jo Donald Trump thought that uh, John Kasich would right. make a good. Because okay. I was in, I think that was in Las Vegas or something. I was um, reading between the lines uh, when I read that story, and it just sounded like like Cruz was hoping that not only would Kasich drop out, but that Kasich would also maybe be his running mate. But there's nothing to that? I don't know if there's anything to that. It, um, he announced Carly Fiorina as his right, kind right. of running mate. But again, that was in the, the uh, 
the last throws of the, the campaign. Stages, yeah, yeah, you know, Donald Trump basically had it sealed up by then. But uh, you know, yeah, he. I just I love that it's one day after. It's very you know a peak Washington story. It's a good detail. We're jumping around a good bit today from national to state to county news. Let's talk about a couple of county stories that were brewing. We talked last week about County Executive Armin Budish's proposal to extend a contract with Highland Software, which is central to a criminal case involving a former county employee who's charged with a crime. Budish proposed a contract extension without having an estimated cost, which the county council questioned. Now the contract extension is dead. Courtney, what's up with that? This was a bizarre way to find out about it. We were all sitting in there listening to this update about the county's uh, IT overhaul project. And at the end, one of the IT personnel got up there and said, oh, yeah, we're not pursuing that Highland contract anymore. We figured out it's going to be a challenge, but we can do the work in-house, which just makes you wonder why you didn't start out with it. I proposed it in the beginning. Another contract is anything but dead, one for a massive collation of computer systems into something uniform. The county council has been critical of this contract for a long time, and this week they heard the final verdict on what the cost overruns are. How much is it going to cost us? It started out as a $25 million project, and that included about $3.5 million as a cushion for contingency. Well, it's not 25 now. The administration's saying it's $32 million, which is more than 30%. Council, for, for at least a year, has been, my instinct is just kind of knowing that it's been going poorly and waiting for it to run over budget. But this week is when we officially heard not only it was going well over that $25 million budget, it, it's getting delayed as well. It just just bad news. They they did approve it. I mean, they they spoke their minds, but they did end up approving it. Why was that? Um, it 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 still needs to to go up for the full council for approval. But but the thought there is, this is needed for the county. They're still operating on pieces of the legacy systems from way back in the commissioner days. But at this point, they don't. They feel like they don't have any options. They've committed this much money. It's already, the county says, 70% done. You can't just, in their minds, throw away all that money already spent. All right. Back in Columbus, we had another Ohio angle to the story of Jeffrey Epstein, the financier who was accused of all sorts of sex charges involving underage girls. The first Ohio angle involved Epstein's relationship with Columbus business magnate Les Wexner. Mary, the new angle involves Ohio State University. Yeah, so Ohio State University, in light of these charges against Epstein, is going through its donations and trying to figure out whether or not Epstein gave money. The university said, yes, Epstein has given money, including some money that may have gone to name the football stadium, the uh, Les Wexner football stadium. Uh, They're not saying at this point if they're going to give back the money. They said basically, you know, they... This is radioactive. Nobody wants to be tied to this guy. And so, yeah. and everybody's waiting for the big drop of who are all the names of the people that might have been at his mansion or on his island. Right, right. Um, and so the university said they're going to take action as appropriate. So we'll see what they do. Seth? When did they take the money? Like, what years did they so, know? So, uh, yeah, he made a donation in 1990, just a $1,000 donation. And then in 2007, his reported foundation gave $2.5 million uh, to help name the football complex. Hmm. I was just find it weird because it's, you know, 
people have known this about Jeffrey Epstein for a while. This isn't, you know, the charges are new, but uh, kind of his character isn't. So I, I don't know. I was finding it fascinating when you kind of backlog, like, oh, hey, we got to run back and see if we took money from. But he had managed in, in in ways that are almost inexplicable to resurrect himself after the previous case. Oh, sure. And there have been a lot of analyses on, on how that happened. Um, but now, I mean, with yeah. with reporting done by the Miami Herald and, and what's come out, everybody's running from this guy. Across the state, we had something interesting happen this week. Elected Republican leaders openly criticized President Donald Trump, even calling him racist. Seth, this followed the much-discussed tweets by the president to some members of Congress to go back to the countries they came from, even though most of them are from the United States. Why did Republicans criticize him? Frankly, I don't know. Um, well, we just The we, cynic in me wants to say that some of these districts are maybe going to be a little competitive this time around so they're covering their bases the or human in me that they did it for for because well, sure, their conscience but, called them to do you it? know i'd i'd like to think that but then you look the next day they they're you know the house is holding a vote that's condemning the president for you know basically what all of them said but you know that's a bridge too far i don't i, I don't know the logic escapes me because you can put out a statement, but a vote on the House floor is too much, I guess, for a resolution that's non-binding. It doesn't do anything. Right. But they did the same thing. Uh, who was the Democratic uh, uh, congresswoman who, who who said something? Uh, Ilhan and, Omar. Yeah, and and they they denounced it, but they did not they did not denounce her uh, through a, a resolution. So it's kind of like the, uh, the you know the, the same treatment was the Republicans were giving one of theirs the same treatment this time around they were denouncing it but they didn't want to go as far sure it's just a very dated way of yeah. thinking I, I think some Republicans are starting to realize that the things that Trump says are are just out there inappropriate wrong but usually they don't say anything I mean this was fairly rare I mean some of the statements made were very very strong. Um, and and we haven't seen much of that from the Republicans. The dam's going to break at some point. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, that's it's, where the... it, it's got to. I mean, it's it's really, you know, sensible people on either both sides of the aisle are are going to come to realize that the rhetoric is just wrong. I, you know, that's what the cynic in me thinks too. Right? Is because we've seen before when there have been, you know, these aren't the first kind of you know, questionable, I'll, I'll call them that, I guess, comments that the president has made, right? right? I mean, this is not a new thing. Um, this happens to be bluntly attacking members of Congress using some very, you know, very clear kind of language that, you know, they've been, people have been saying that to like the Irish since the 1850s. This is not a new comment. Um, so I, I do find it strange that all of a sudden now we're going to, they're at the point where, oh, we'll condemn him, but we're not going to vote for it. I, it's, I don't know. It's just kind of an antiquated way. Of, I don't know. It's, it's just weird. Okay, we'll take a break. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Trying to cut through the noise and stay up to date on news that's important in Northeast Ohio can be challenging. We have a small solution, and it's free. It's our weekday newsletter, The Wake Up, which arrives in your email first thing in the morning, meaning you can start your day fully up to date. Join tens of thousands of others who use The Wake Up to be in the know. Sign up at cleveland.com slash newsletters. It's this week in the CLE, the discussion and analysis of the news by the reporters and editors at cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn with Mary Kilpatrick, and in this segment, reporters Corey Schaefer, Adam Faris, and Bob Higgs. Corey, let's start with a talker of a story you wrote this week, the sentencing of a former NFL player and local high school football coach who had sex with a student 30 years his junior. 
We've seen teachers and coaches get sentenced for this kind of thing before, but this case was unusual for the grilling the judge gave this guy. You were there. What did you see? So it was pretty clear that um, Judge Joan Sinnenberg was upset with the coach, the uh, former NFL player, Sean Williams, because after he pleaded guilty to sexual battery, um, what happens is, this happens with every defendant to go through a a post- uh, a pre-sentence report, and they have to talk to the probation officer. And in that report, apparently, Sean Williams had said something to the effect that I didn't have, I didn't sexually abuse this girl. I didn't, I didn't do this, basically. Uh, and that upset the judge because one of the things that you know they look at when they sentence you is, are you taking remorse and responsibility for your actions? He pled guilty. And basically what Judge Sinnenberg was saying was, you either lied to the probation officer or you lied to me by pleading guilty. So which is it? And the, and the, the girl, the kid, was in the back of the courtroom for all this, right? Or for part of it? Yes, yeah. she was. So, so one of the things, at one point, I mean, this guy was accused of taking her to a hotel and, and all sorts of things. And, and at one point he says to the judge, yeah, I took her to the hotel, but we didn't have sex there. And then she said, well, what about, did you, you know, sex in the closet or the classroom? He goes, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> the sex was outside the, cl- outside the closet, which was, you know, means I did have sex with this girl, which he had been denying. I mean, yeah. it sounded like he just was, he was making it worse and worse. <clears throat> Ultimately, though, the prosecution wanted a much longer sentence than he got. Um, what happened there where the judge didn't go with the full recommendation of the prosecutor? Well, I think it's pretty standard for prosecutors to ask for close to, if not the maximum sentence every single time. And the defense was actually arguing for probation, and they made, and the defense attorney, Rufus Sims, made a um, very, he was very adamant that this was a case for probation, and he tried to cite some other cases in the past where people who pled guilty to sexual battery had gotten probation. Um, you know, I, I had covered another sentencing. Um, earlier this year in a different judge's courtroom where a, a guy who pleaded guilty to sexually abusing a young child got probation. Um, and But there's a, there's a difference, right, in the minds of the court when it's a teacher. Right, that's a position. A you're you're in a position somebody, of power, and right. that, that's treated differently in the court and, and, and in the law, too. You have a position of power and authority over this person, and like I think there's a, a separate specification or a separate charge for that. So what did he get? He got six years in prison. Six years in prison. And um, to to compare that, you know, I had actually sat in on a different sentencing this week of sexual battery. Uh, this was a, a security guard at East Tech High School, and he got a four year sentence. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so yeah, it was it was a crazy crazy sentencing. For sure. Adam, you wrote a while back about the firing of a Cleveland cop who was hired based on his experience in another country. You followed up this week with kind of a jaw dropper about new details on this guy. What were they? Uh, that he was during his time in in Norway, he was uh, um, a known associate to the Hell's Angels. Uh, I think it was Oslo chapter of the Hell's Angels in Norway, and trained some at least some of their members in mixed martial arts. Um, was he fired for being a member of a gang, or was he fired? for not being honest about being a member of a gang. Yeah, well, it wasn't even the gang member. It was uh, he was fired for not uh, disclosing that he had prior criminal convictions. 
Uh, he, he, he was convicted, I think, of extortion and uh, assault. and Involving and his membership at, as, uh, in the gang or just uh, not, separate? Yeah, not sure because those cases were all expunged in Norway. So uh, that's part of the reason why it escaped the FBI background check. The cases were expunged, so they never even knew this guy was a... Um, you know, I had a felony conviction. In your reporting, were you able to tell, are the Hells Angels a big deal overseas? I mean, is it, a, is it another one of the American cultural exports to the world, the Hells Angels motorcycle gang? Um, I mean, it seems like it's something that's all over the place. Um, it's not a, yeah, I think they're out there doing what they do here, there. Um, Does he have much chance of an appeal? You know, we've seen so many officers get fired who who appeal the process, go to mediation, and a lot of them get their job back. Does, do you see that as much of a possibility here? Uh, not at all, because he's he was within his probationary period, which is, I think, a year now. But, um, yeah, if, if you do anything in that time frame, You're done. there's no recourse, really. You're... Okay. It's summer in the city. It's construction season in the city. And, Bob, you had details this week about some agony coming for people who use the Interstate 90 exit uh, to get to University Circle. What's happening with the highway intersection with Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard? This is a project that's supposed to start Monday, and they're going to upgrade all of the exits off the highway. They're going to widen the road about a quarter of a mile or so to get under the bridge down to what is East 88. That's the street that goes up to Rockefeller Gardens. And, and some other odds and ends to improve it. But it's going to take some time. It's going to start Monday and run into October. They're going to keep the exit open most of that time, but they're going to be moving lanes around as they do the work, and it's going to plug things up. Anybody who's used that intersection knows that at certain times of the day, even if you're, if you're heading east and you're trying to get to University Circle, you want to turn right at the bottom of the exit, there's so many cars coming across that it just backs it up. People can't get there. Is this going to change that? Is this going to fix that? that? That's part of what this project will do. They're going to put in double turn lanes. Right now, when you come, if you're eastbound and you get off there, there's two lanes at the bottom of the ramp. One goes right, one goes left. They're going to change that so there's two lanes that go right towards the circle. So you can ha- and put a traffic signal in there, so you'll be able to have. There'll be a light. Yeah, there'll be a light. You'll and part of the road widening they're going to do to the south will allow those two lanes to turn, and then have time to merge, uh, without it being a quick jam up there. So some short-term agony, but then some long-term relief. Let's end our news discussion with the one piece of news upon which everyone can agree: it's hot. Mary, how hot? It is quite hot. I think the National Weather Service says the high for Friday tomorrow is going to be 97 degrees, uh, which is hot even for me. Um, but I did get some tips about how to keep your energy bill down, um, especially when you're running your air conditioner. Talked to an HVAC specialist. His recommendation was fairly modest. Just turn your AC up one degree to sort of try to save energy. First Energy told me that for every one degree you move your thermostat up, you could save 2% on your energy bill on the hottest days. Is First Energy ready for the demand? Do you get the sensors or possibility we could have rolling brownouts, or are they not really addressing that? First Energy said that they are prepared for summer weather, so we shall see. We'll see. All right, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the best place to get brunch in Cleveland.
If you're enjoying our This Week in the CLE podcast, you'll want to subscribe to Cleveland.com's free morning newsletter, The Wake Up. It's waiting for you in your email when you arise each morning to bring you news from overnight in the previous day. If you read The Wake Up each morning, you're up to date. Subscribe at Cleveland.com slash newsletters. It's time to talk food on This Week in the CLE, and we have the right guy in place to do that. Welcome to the podcast, Mark Bona. Hello, Chris. You've just put together a new version of a very popular guide we do to brunch places in Cleveland. You don't rank them, but you pretty much classify them based best baked goods selection, best place for kids. Uh, how about giving us a couple of your favorites? Yeah, this is wild. We started uh, going to brunch places on a regular basis about, uh, really about three years ago, and the response has been, it's been unbelievable, the traction we get on these stories. And I realized recently that we just topped 100 places, uh, and, and they've been, it's been very eye-opening for me because I'll go anywhere. Uh, we'll go to uh, mom-and-pop places, to fine dining restaurants, corporate-owned, family-run it really doesn't matter. And we, we also go all over the place. We've been as far west as Oberlin, as far east as Chardon. Uh, and, and it's really been, uh, it, it's really been amazing. There's, there's so much out there. All right. You, you say there's 100 places, but the list, I think, was, what, in the 40s, right? Yeah. I was able to call kind of a best of type of list. Uh, so there's a lot of different categories I was looking at. So, so what does it take to make the cut? Uh, things that really stand out in, in one way or the other. Um, th- there's, it's, it's really amazing because it almost, there are so many places that are surprising me that do brunch. Even breweries these days are doing brunch. And people are, they're trying to stand out. Restaurants are trying to find a way to, to separate themselves with their brunch menu. So you don't always get just the tried and true. You get a lot of spins on things. So for instance, uh, Bloody Marys, I'm not a drinker at brunch, but Bloody Marys are very, very popular at places. And, I, I was really blown away by what Burntwood Tavern offered. I mean, it's a meal in a glass. Uh, the hot sauces are lined up. You can just put anything you want. To, to, it's not just a, a one or two different things. There's cheese. There's celery. There's hot sauce. There's all sorts of garnishes. It just goes on and on. A lot of places are doing uh, Bloody Mary bars as well as mimosa. Uh, all you can drink mimosas. Basically, pitchers of mimosas. Uh, I was I was really surprised by that. How instrumental to the brunch? goer is the alcohol i would say fairly fairly significant but it the place will draw a certain clientele so your brewery crowd and your high-end restaurants are going to draw some drinkers your mom and pop places um often won't you know it's not it's you you know where you want to go in terms of if you want that bloody mary bar there's certain places you're really going to going to take a look at so to not make the cut, what, why, why wouldn't, what is it about a place that you just, you don't add them to the list? There's nothing that distinguishes them? Well, it, uh, let me just say this. Of the places we've been to, I always ask every week, and this, this post at 7 o'clock in the morning every Saturday, I always say, hey, if you have uh, a suggestion for me, I am all ears. And right now, on a regular basis, I literally have 20 places that it's like planes lining up. So if anybody's listening who's emailed me, I'm trying to get there as fast as I can. <laughs> I will say this. On another th- one thing that really – one variable that equates all of these places, the servers hustle. They are in a position to really turn over tables to make money, and they are hustling. I rarely have to wait for coffee. Most are very young girls or older women. They are just going. 
going and going and going, and I really appreciate that. So overall, this list wasn't so much a best of. It really was a certain dish or dishes or something special or different about a place that really stood out. So for instance, uh, you know, one of the categories was uh, most decadent, and I, I th- this this was an easy an easy one. The Cheesecake Factory actually list their calorie count on, <laughs> on what they have. And they had a peanut butter and banana waffle that was just unbelievable. Warm peanut butter, fresh banana slices, smothered with Nutella, and it was over 1,500 categories. <laughs> Excuse me, 1,500 calories. Well, l- let me ask you about that, though, because, you know, you have to go and sample all this stuff. Do you spread this out over time so that you're not wolfing down mammoth numbers of calories in a short order? I go with a, a, a dining partner we take a look at the menu we'll each order one thing and i often ask i've started asking waitresses servers uh and other people sometimes the owners what's the most popular thing you have here what's really what's the draw to to bring people back uh so i get sometimes it's a different answer from what i get i try i really come out of a comfort zone on this i was not a big brunch eater years ago i will try to eat something different at at every place i really try to vary it up the big trend i see though is breakfast burgers. And I think some restaurants are kind of lazy about it. They think they just throw a fried egg on a burger and, and that's, you know, they, they call that a breakfast burger. But if I, and I get this all the time, what's your favorite? It really depends what you want. But if I had to choose one dish at one place that really blew me away, I would say, uh, that the breakfast burger at Felice Urban Cafe over on the east side, it's on Larchmere Boulevard on the east side of Cleveland. They did an absolutely phenomenal breakfast burger. Uh, they put whipped avocado on the burger and instead of a bun, they used fried plantain. So you get the slight sweetness from the banana basically as the bun. The top of the plantain on top was crunchy. The one on the bottom was soggy because of the burger. It was different textures, great taste, very savory, a little salty, a little sweet. I really like a lot of flavors coming together. Uh, That was, if I had to choose one dish, that was my ultimate favorite. When will you start doing this again? Are you doing this year-round? Year-round. I don't don't miss a beat on this. This is every Saturday. I work in advance, so uh, keep the emails coming. Um, And I also, because we've done so many now, I will be uh, doing posts like this on an even more regular basis. So uh, in several weeks, we're going to take a look at just the best buffets throughout the area. There's a handful. They range in price and they range in offerings. And we're going to take a look at who's got some of the best buffets. But but this has been fun. I mean, I've had to watch my waistline on it, but it, it really has <laughs> been it has been a lot of fun. One last question. Is there a best time to go to these places for brunch? Or maybe I should ask, is there a worst time? No, um, but I do encourage anyone to always check uh, websites or call ahead because some places are Saturday only, some places are Sunday only, and some places are both days on the weekend. But that can vary and they can change it up. And some places, a lot of the mom and pop breakfast places we've been to, obviously six, seven days a week, always very early in the morning. But I would always check that. And if it's out of your area, what you may also want to do is if you call them, say, hey, is there a, a certain time when church is getting out on Sunday because that's when we notice a lot of places fill up. All right. You can read Mark's list on brunches on cleveland.com along with all the rest of his work. Thanks to Mark and everyone else who participated today. This week in the CLE is normally published Thursday nights. Hit the subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. Let us know how we are doing by sending an email to special at cleveland.com. <laughs>